0: good to have you in the service this evening and I know we have several folks here this evening from area churches who weren't here this morning. And tonight's message is continuation from this morning's message and so I need to take just a couple of minutes to bring the folks who are here this evening who weren't here this morning up to speed so they'll know what we're talking about. This morning we talked about a 200-pound chimpanzee named Travis, and he lived in the home of Sandra Harold for 14 years. He had full reign of the house. She was He, he was a companion of Sandra's and could do anything he wanted at the house, and then one day... He went postal on her friend, attacked, attempted to kill her. The police had to put him down to stop the rampage. Sandra, the owner, had been warned by the Humane Society that he was a dangerous 200-pound primate that he had the strength of two, ten football players that you did not want to get on the business end of his wrath, that he had the jungle nature buried deep within, that if it ever manifests itself, you were in big trouble. But she had made peace with the fact That she thought she could control it. She knew about the jungle nature. She knew it could be dangerous. But she thought she could control it. And the point that I made was, there are too many people who are coming to our churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday who have a nature buried deep within that will lead them into all sorts of addictive and uncontrollable habits. And they know all about it. But they think they can control it. And they've come to terms with it. And they've decided that that's just the way they're going to let it be. And they've made peace with it. And the question that I sent folks home with was this. So how much sin are you willing to tolerate in your life? And sometimes the you say or do things that surprise even you. And because you've tasted sin in the past... Do you really believe that you're hopelessly programmed to continue to repeat those past mistakes over and over again for as long as you're going to live? In other words, do you believe your old addictive nature is greater than God's healing power to change you? I hope, as you've contemplated that question today, for those of you who were here this morning, that you decided you opted for a zero tolerance for sin. That question reminds me of a friend of our family who went to the doctor one day, and he gave her that dreaded news that they had discovered a few cancer cells in her body. Now, there weren't very many. In fact, when he showed her the x-rays, and she told me how many there were, it was about the size of the end of your little finger. In comparison to the whole mass of your body, I mean, that's not very much, really. is it? Is it? But our friend decided, even that many cancer cells, too many for her, and so she elected the most radical surgery possible, and they removed a large section of her body just to be sure they got it all, because as far as she was concerned, a few cancer cells were too many cancer cells for her. I mentioned this morning that I'm afraid that even in the church of the Nazarene, we are becoming complacent to allow ourselves to live in Romans chapter 12, verses 15 through 20. Now, how is it How is it that we've come up with this interpretation that Christians can put up with this idea of this business of continuing to do what we know we ought not to do and Hate to do it, but we're going to keep on doing it and just keep coming to church every week and hate it, but we do it anyway and we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it and we know we ought to do it, but we don't. And you know the story, Romans 7. Well, I've studied it and I've thought a lot about it. And after studying the history of Christian thought and my um, <laughs> just went completely haywire. Um, to get a handle on it, 17th century Holland, a Dutch lawyer by the name of Hugo Grotius, who impacted Christian thinking about our standing with God as it relates to God. And us, and our relationship with God. And I'm not really knocking Grotius because I think Grotius did a lot of really good things during his distinguished career. He worked mostly as a lawyer in international law. He was a great Christian apologist. In other words, he thought about ways of explaining the Christian faith to the world. Those who think about Christian faith, have no doubt heard his theory of the atonement. It's called the governmental theory of the atonement. He's the one who actually developed the governmental theory of the atonement. It uses legal language to explain it. Nazarenes like that theory. It's quite popular with Wesleyans. It goes something like this. God is the moral governor of the universe, and we have broken God's moral law. And God must punish us for breaking that moral law. And yet Christ stepped in and took our place on the cross. And therefore, the price has been paid. I want you to look for a few moments at these pictures. And I want you to let their impressions settle in. Because these are the words that Hugo Grotius used as he started coming up with words to think about you and God and your standing with God and see what comes to mind. They're all pictures from the legal system. Now, I don't know what words you think of, but I think of words like stern and rigid and formal and distant and, of course, guilty. Now, what's your natural reaction if you're driving down I 72? minding your own business, listening to your favorite tunes on your MP3 player and drinking a big gulp and suddenly you see off in the distance a policeman with a radar gun. You probably, if you're like me, you either take your foot off the accelerator or you tap off your uh, cruise control. You don't even think about it. You just do it because you think... You might be speeding. Perhaps you're not intentionally meaning to speed, but you could be speeding. You might be speeding. And if so, then you'd be guilty. Or if you're just hanging around the house, the doorbell rings, you go to the door, there's a man who hands you an envelope and says, you've been served. It's a blue envelope, a subpoena, First reaction is, you've done something wrong. Or you think you've done something wrong, you're being called into court. That's because whenever we see a radar gun or a blue envelope that contains a subpoena, anything that involves courthouses or judges or any of those things, and I guess at this point in the message I ought to just, Flush them out, or are there any judges in church tonight? Because I was preaching eloquently on this one night, and come to find out, there was a judge, you know, sitting in the court. I was just going on and on, and I, and I guess he was just laughing away because I was. But <clears throat> when you use this imagery, God looks an awful lot like a judge, and the Bible looks an awful lot like a big fat book of rules that. Who knows where they are and what they mean. And I look like I'm being hauled into court before the judge in order to stand trial. Why? Because I'm guilty. Well, as I said, Hugo Grotius had a profound impact on the Christian church back in the 17th century, and afterwards, clear up until the 21st century, about the way we image our standing with God. Because He used legal terms, lawyers, courts, all that. So now we get to today, and I ask you this series of questions. Is your religious performance, I mean the way you live Sunday through Saturday, Always flawless? And are your motives always unselfish? And is your attitude always as pure as the falling snow? And are your examples and reactions always exemplary? If you say no to even one of those questions, then your Guilty. And I think that's why, as I mentioned this morning, so many of my friends are now beginning to refer to themselves in the present tense as sinners. Because according to the perfect standard of divine righteousness, they fall short, and so do I. They miss the mark, which is a biblical definition of sin in both the Old and New Testament. And so, inadvertently, we fall into the trap of worm theology, of being dirty little worms who crawl into church Sunday after Sunday to encounter a clean, holy God and say, sin is an unfortunate inevitability, as we talked about this morning. Well, now we get back to those images of God and the way we see God and God sees us and all of that. Now let's look to another famous Dutch Christian thinker. Again, we're in the 17th century. Again, Holland. This man's name is Jacob Arminius. He was a pastor, a chair of theology at the University of Leiden, deeply involved in theological discussions of the day. Arminius was... Uh, later studied by John Wesley, and that's why our theology to this day is referred to as a Wesleyan-Arminian theology. John Wesley, Jacob Arminius. Arminius and those who followed him later, John Wesley and us, see it as a family relationship. God and us. That God is a loving Heavenly Father. And that he sees us as his much-loved children. And so the images that we use are the images of family and of love and of mutual relationship. Now I want you to look at these pictures. This picture always takes my breath away because um, the little girl that Brent's holding is our little Marley, and she went to be with Jesus a couple of weeks ago, and so our family is uh, still uh, regrouping from that. But that's my family. That's our son Brent, and he finished his PhD, and um, so that's that's a, a family picture. Whenever I think of the interaction that we have with God as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the church of the Nazarene, I don't think of God dressed in the black robe, sitting in a judge's seat, and me standing in front of the judge's big desk. I think of a story from the days when Abraham Lincoln lived in the White House. As you know, it's almost impossible for any one of us to get an appointment with the President of the United States. That's not the case when Abraham Lincoln's kids wanted to talk to the President of the United States. No, sir. They just walked past the President's secretary, right into the president's conference room, climbed right up into the president's lap, whispered into the president's ear, and asked a favor of the president of the United States of America. And as the story goes, the kids usually got what they asked for. They always got a, had a listening ear, They usually got what they wanted. Now you tell me, which one of those sets of images is more inviting? A black-robed judge in a courtroom? Or a father with a big inviting lap? I'll take the second one any day. Now, I set you up just a minute ago because I said the Bible defines sin as missing the mark. But what I didn't say was that the Bible almost always factors intention into the equation. You see, when the Bible says sin is missing the mark, the Bible also says, but were you aiming for the mark? We have a lot of hunters in this part of the country. You see, it makes a big difference whether you're aiming at the squirrel or the deer or whether you're aiming out the window over here at something else. It makes a big difference. God always factors in intention when He defines sin. And he always uses family relational models when he does it. Since I'm here this weekend, I've been thinking about stories back from the days when your pastor was in Mid America. Think about family and this business of intention. Reminded me of a story one day when your pastor came over to my house. I was I'm always. One of the ways that I relax is by a remodeling project or um, adding a room onto my house or something. In fact, as I was coming down here, I was actually scratching concrete off my fingernails from a project I'm doing right now. And your pastor came over and was helping me add on a room to my house several years ago when he was a college student. And about at that time, my son Brent was eight years old, and he was playing in the backyard with his trucks and tractors and the dirt. It, it had to be 100 degrees that summer one day. And he saw that I was hammering away. The sun was beating down and I was just burning up. And he decided that I needed a drink. And so I missed him for a few minutes. And in a little bit, he came out. And it was, it was, it was cute as it could be. It was so funny. Because he had gone in the house and he had gotten me a drink of water. Now, remember, he had been playing in the dirt. So he goes in the house and opens. We had one of those refrigerators with the fridge on the bottom. So it's really easy for an eight-year-old to get to the ice trays. He'd gotten the ice trays and he had opened them up and he had gotten the ice out. And he had put the ice in the glass and then he had filled it up with water. And then he brought it out to me. Oh yeah, he didn't wash his hands before he got the eyes. And so, all this stuff's just floating. I mean, all this stuff that was on the ground is now in the glass. And it's just floating all over the place. And he goes, here dad, here's a drink of water for you. and I'm looking at all, and I'm thinking, you know, I could drink this right now. I'd probably choke or I can stand here and say, well, thanks, son. Thanks for the drink of water and let it, you know, hopefully it'll settle to the bottom in a minute, which it did. And I talked to him and I'm just, I'm watching this stuff settle down and I'm talking. I go, and so what's, show me what you're doing. And we're talking, you know, I'm watching this stuff settle. And finally it settles far enough down. And, and so I drink it. I actually drink the water. And uh, most of it, not all of it, um, but most of it. Now, here's my question. What do you think I saw? Was Brent's performance perfect? What do you think I saw as a dad when I looked at that glass? Was it the intention of his heart? Or was it all that stuff floating in the water? I love that kid so much. In fact, I was thinking today, I was was thinking of this illustration. I've had two text messages and two phone conversations with him today. We communicate often. We're close. We've been close. Our whole lives were close now. I love that kid with all my heart. I'd do anything for him. You think... If I love Brent that much, how much more our Heavenly Father loves us? Don't you think He factors intention into the equation? He looks at the desires of our heart. He looks at motive. He looks at how we're aiming. Not whether we color outside the lines once in a while when we're really trying. That's, That's how our God is looking at it. God is not after flawless performance. He's looking at a heart aimed toward Him. So, can we find biblical models for this? I believe so. Romans 8, 15. For do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but we receive the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. That is... a Aramaic word for daddy. Daddy. Intimate family relationship. And then notice this one. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart. The spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Notice, we're not slaves. We're sons. Spirit of sonship. And then Jesus you fathers, if your children ask you a fish, do you give them a snake? Or if they ask for an egg, you give them a scorpion? Of course not. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? Will you know that God created us and placed us in the garden? To have fellowship with us. And you know the whole story of how we failed. But as we've talked about throughout this holiness series, he's done everything in his power to restore that relationship. To bring us back. To bring us back. To bring us back. To transform us. To make us into the people that he wants us to be. One of the questions that I was asked to address in our time together uh, for this series was, is entire sanctification actually biblically defined as a second work of grace? Well, as you know, the Bible is actually filled with the notion of holiness. In fact, it's used over a thousand times in the Bible. Uncle Buddy Robinson, who's one of the early evangelists in the church of the Nazarene, used to say, there is so much holiness in this book, God couldn't get it all on the inside, so he had to put some of it on the outside and call it the Holy Bible. You know, it's just full of holiness. And as you start working through it, you see that, well, what we read this morning. We read this movement in chapter 7 as saying, Here's how I was, Paul, Romans 7. Here's how God called me to be, Romans 8. Therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians. Paul is writing to a group of believers. When you get back home tonight, read the movement in chapter 3. Start at, Well, you can read all chapter 3, but especially verse 10. Notice the movement in to believers in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. As Paul is talking to these believers in the church of Thessalonica as he is calling them to a life of not just some general holiness lifestyle, but very specifically to sanctification. That passage of Scripture that we read at the beginning of the service, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Again, to believers. By the way, the book of Romans, which I'm a theology teacher, so I love this, the entire book of Romans is a theological argument. So it's one long argument. In fact, the book of Romans can be read as one long argument. It's not, it's not a whole bunch of chopped up argument. It's one, you can read it in one sitting, And the first 11 chapters can actually be read in in one breath, in fact. The first 11 chapters. And then you get to chapter 12, therefore. So the first 11 chapters are all the on-ramp to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore. So the first 11 chapters is all about this call to consecration. The consecration of giving yourself to God, consecrating for a life of service. I have a whole sermon on Hebrews chapter 4. Again, a call to believers about the Sabbath rest for the people of God. The second rest. This these And my favorite line in that passage is where it says, and these people of God didn't find that rest. And so that rest still waits for you. It's there. It's there for you. Well, of course, you could go to Acts chapter 2. Those disciples who were believers have this second experience at Pentecost... Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, on and on you can find through Scripture where these folks who are believers are admonished to move on into this experience of being filled with the Spirit. But you know what really clinched the deal for me as a Nazarene? Of course, as I said in other services, I have been a Nazarene my entire life. I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene. But the thing that clinched it for me, maybe because I was Nazarene, was a sermon I heard one time by a Baptist. And I said, well, I guess, you know, I expect it from a Nazarene, but I didn't expect it from a Baptist. I was getting ready for church one Sunday morning when I was in seminary. Just happened to have the TV on. Jerry Falwell, Thomas Road Baptist Church, Lynchburg, Virginia, just happened to be on. And he was preaching eloquently. And I just happened to be passing by the TV, and I mean, I just, he stopped me in my tracks. He said, folks, I've got to talk to you today about the something more experience. He said, in the Baptist tradition, we talk about forgiveness of sins. But I'm here to tell you, that is not enough. He said, you need to have Jesus forgive you of your sins. But there is something that yet remains in the Christian life that needs to be dealt with. And I don't know what to call it. And I thought, Jerry, you do know what to call it. You know what the problem is because you're good friends with Chuck Milhuff. You know what to call it. But we'll not go there now. He said, I don't know what to call it, so let's just call it the something more experience. But he said, what needs to happen is you need to get down on your knees and you need to consecrate your life to God and you need to die out to self and you need to give yourself completely to God and you need to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you completely. And I said, Jerry, you've just danced all the way around into our sanctification. So he said, let's just call it the something more experience. And I said, well, you know what, I think I could spend the rest of my life in the Church of the Nazarene preaching sanctification because Jerry Falwell has just convinced me that we've got a message to declare. And then as I uh, started studying, I I found out that Billy Graham had the experience. You know, Billy Graham and his ministry early on tells of entire sanctification. And then as I studied, I forgot to Vanderbilt, Dwight L. Moody he tells us on himself. He was a tremendous evangelist in the 19th century. And, with you know, he, a shoe salesman, Chicago. And he was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. And he said, preaching to a big crowd, and one night after the altar call, a couple of little ladies came up to him, and they said, um, Brother Moody, we're praying for you that you'll receive... The blessing. Too little late. And they just walked off. And that just got, that was just a burr under his saddle. And he said, What on earth are they talking about? And he went back to his room and he couldn't go to sleep. And he just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And he said, Lord, what are they talking about? He had no idea anything about holiness, sanctification, all the rest. Long story short, he prayed for two weeks. It was a burr under his saddle that he could not get away from. And finally, all the things that Jerry Falwell had said. He said, Lord, I surrender all. I don't know what it is. I don't know what those two women are talking about. But whatever it is, apparently I need it. And I give you everything. I give you my future ministry. Well, anyway, he said he prayed through on it. He gave the Lord everything. And the, the Lord did a work in his heart. And he didn't even know how to describe it. But he said, said, something happened to me, and he didn't tell anybody about it. He did not tell a soul. And then he had another service, and those two little ladies came up to him after the service and said, well, we see the Lord answered our prayer, didn't He? (laughs) So I would argue that beyond the shadow of any doubt, Not only is it biblical, but it's experiential. And it's not just something that Nazarenes talk about. And it's not just something that Wesleyans talk about. People like Dwight L. Moody and Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell. And just anybody who searches Scripture will tell you it's there and it's something that we all need. So I would say, and we've talked about this Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning and now tonight. And I want to bring us to this point of, so what is it that I need to do? I would say, first of all, you ask yourself these three questions. Do I see in my own heart that that there's a need, like we talked about this morning in the worship service? And am I resolved and determined that I am going to seek this holy heart with all my being. And am I willing to give God everything? And I'm, the old timers used to call it selling out completely. Am I willing to sell out completely? And if you answer yes to those, then here's what you do. One, offer yourself completely to God. That's the scripture we read tonight. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Brother, I urge you. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies in living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That involves the surrender. Confess your needs. Say, Lord, I need your help. And then you consecrate, which again, Second Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Obey the voice of the Spirit within as the Spirit leads, guides, and directs. That's what I say at the end of the service. You listen to the voice of God. I'm not trying to tell you to do anything. You do what the Spirit of God leads you to do. And then that verse that I've just kind of alluded to a minute ago, and that is from 1 Thessalonians 5. Believe God in faith. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I think is so important. The one who calls you is faithful. And He will do it. You see, you can consecrate. That's your part. God is the one who sanctifies. That's His part. You make the offer. He's the one who sanctifies. You do your part. But He's the one that does His part. Sanctification is a gift from God. He's the one who does the sanctifying. And we count on Him to do it. So that's the good news for tonight. I would argue that God wants to completely fill you with His Spirit. God wants to deal with that sinful nature within that causes you to want to preference your ways over God's ways. That wants to say, oh, do what you want to do. Have it your way. Please yourself. All those things. God wants to break that cycle of sinning. And God wants to transform you into the person that He wants you to be. It's the Father's special gift for His child. I'm here this evening to urge you to accept that gift, to let Him transform you and conform you into the image of His Son. That's why we have series like these and services like this. To give you an opportunity not only to hear, but also to respond. We're going to stand at this time and our musicians are going to come. If the Holy Spirit has been calling you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know Him as your personal Savior, you know your sins are forgiven. You say, well, that's where I am tonight. I love the Lord with all my heart. I'm serving Him as best I know how. I want to offer myself wholly to Him as a gift in service to His kingdom work for whatever He wants to do for me, however He wants to use me, to be filled with His Spirit completely and used for His service. Just like we talked about from Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5. This is an opportunity for you to do that. Heavenly Father, We've been coming together in this place Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, this morning and this evening to celebrate Christian holiness. We know as we've talked about this is not something that a man named John Wesley just thought up. It's something that's been a part of our Christian heritage for 2,000 years. It's been celebrated by believers down through the ages. People of Written about it and talked about it and experienced it in their lives as they've read about it in your word. And we follow in a very, very long tradition of those who have faithfully gone before. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't leave us in our sins to grope and find our own way. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. But that you didn't just stop there. But like Jerry Falwell said, you also helped out your hand to offer us that something more experience. That something more that could change us down deep inside so that that cycle of sinning could be broken. Sometimes we even surprise ourselves with that outburst, with that carnal word, that bad attitude, that quick, smart tone that we say, where did that come from? We need your Spirit to cleanse us deep, deep, deep down inside, to change our inner nature, We need your Holy Spirit to sweeten us from within. To make us the man, the woman, that you not only saved us to be, but that you created us to be. I pray, Lord Jesus, that in the closing moments of this service, if you have a a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is your disciple, who loves you with all their heart, who wants to consecrate him or herself to you, that this would be the night that they say, I'm all in. I want to step across the line and offer myself in service to the kingdom more fully than I've ever done before. I've been around the church for a long time. I've been involved in the work But I can't truly say that I've been all in. I want to be all in. I want to sell out, lock, stock and barrel, everything I am, everything I ever hoped to be. Lord, here are the keys, not most of the keys, but all the keys. Every single key to every single room of my heart, they're all yours. We know, Jesus, in your public ministry, you always called us to a public confession of yourself. And so I pray, Lord, that we would respond to you tonight as we victoriously declare our allegiance to you as we offer ourselves in service. We pray in Jesus' name.